Have you ever been the victim of identity theft? Ever applied for a loan or a credit card, only to find out someone else has masqueraded as you and negatively affected your credit standing? Identity theft and new account fraud is a global problem. If you live in the United States, chances are you've been a victim. And if not, it's likely somebody close to you has been. I was chatting with Tom O'Malley, the former federal financial crimes prosecutor you met in episode two, and we were discussing identity theft. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission reported recently that $3.3 billion was lost in 2020 due to identity theft. And that's nearly double the $1.8 billion lost in 2019. And where are those stolen identities put to work? Well, online, of course, in the form of new accounts, credit card accounts, lines of credit, deposit accounts, you name it. Here's Tom O'Malley. Most often, they're being opened remotely because it presents a little risk to the person who's opening the account. I mean, if you show up physically to open something, besides whatever documents you present, which are probably going to be fake driver's license, etc., you put yourself as a criminal at risk because there's surveillance cameras. Nowadays, there's the ability to match surveillance footage with driver's license, facial recognition driver's license. So typically, criminals are not going to uh, do this physically in a branch bank. They're going to do it remotely, and they can do it remotely from anywhere in the world. And depending on a bank's processes and fraud methods to detect fraud, uh, it can be done from anywhere in the world, even though they're supposed to be a customer in the United States opening up a bank account. This is interesting. Unlike the scams and account takeover stories that we discussed in earlier episodes, crimes that disproportionately target older folks, identity fraud victims are more likely to be young, like under 40. In fact, in 2019, of the 1.6 million identity fraud reports in the U.S., 44% were from people between the ages of 20 and 29. According to Equifax Canada, nearly half of all suspected fraud applications are for those between 18 and 24. And this is partly why. Not every identity or fake account is necessarily even connected to a real person. Sometimes identities are just made up out of whole cloth. These are called synthetic IDs. And if you can start with a, let's say a real identity number, and then add a fake address, an age, a phone number, that's an ID that can be extremely valuable. Now, with kids, they get a government ID when they're really young, but they may never open an account or apply for a credit card until they're young adults. So, welcome to adulthood, kid. You've been the victim of identity theft for years. Okay, so back to real full identities. Somebody gets a hold of your personal information, enough to open a credit card account in your name. Maybe they obtained your personal information on the dark web. Maybe it was originally stolen in some big corporate data breach. And then that info, your data, is applied to an online form to open an account. Oh, by the way, it might not be a credit card account. It could just be a bank account. So instead of opening false credit in your name, it's used for shuffling money around for scams or mule activities. Both issues we'll be taking a closer look at in later episodes. 
for this episode of Digital Tells, we're taking a close look at the act of opening fraudulent accounts, which, for those of us who have been victims, happens silently, in the background, before that heart-in-your-throat moment when you realize your credit rating has been ruined. Or perhaps even worse, you're contacted by law enforcement about scams or mule activities perpetrated in your name. Also, very important note here, your credit rating, or mine for that matter, isn't the only fallout of identity theft. Financial institutions, credit issuers, they're the ones usually taking the hard financial losses. A study released earlier this year by Javelin Strategy and Research reported that combined fraud losses climbed to $56 billion in 2020 globally. And of that, traditional identity fraud losses totaled $13 billion. All right, so back to that initial account opening. In episode two, we got a glimpse into the sophistication and scale of cybercrime syndicates. Scale, meaning lots and lots of accounts and lots of victims. It's seldom just one account. Rather, it's usually hundreds or even thousands of accounts opened in each campaign. And therein lies an opportunity for institutions to differentiate between legitimate and fraudulent applications. The digital tells of fraudulent applications, if you will. My colleague Raj Dasgupta and I were recently talking about what typically happens during the act of applying for fraudulent accounts. Raj is the director of fraud strategy at Biocatch and has two decades of experience in the trenches dealing with identity fraud issues at organizations like TransUnion, HSBC, and Semantic, among others. Okay, so before I go to Raj, for just a moment, think about what you do when you open an online account. Maybe you're taking advantage of a great credit card deal with lots of hotel reward points. Then, put yourself in the seat of one of these highly specialized cybercriminals we discussed earlier. How would you go about your job of applying for multiple fraudulent accounts, hour after hour, all day long? Okay, here's Raj. I think copy-pasting in online interaction can be on two different scenarios. One is account opening, where you're copy-pasting stolen information or made-up information onto a form, which is used for new account opening. And it can be copy-pasting the name, address, or certain parts of the PII, quite likely from an application like an Excel sheet where you have all the stolen data. And within that copy-pasting behavior, one is it's unusual for somebody applying for a new account to be copy-pasting their own data. And the other is there can be copy-paste and then erasing the pasted data putting it in another form. As I was saying, it could be that the first name, last name are together in the Excel sheet. It's copied over to the first name field and then you cut the last name and place it in the last name field. Very, very unusual scenarios or online behavior. That's one. Then in the realm of account takeover, once you're inside the user's account, the thing that drives you is to move money out of that account. How do you do that? You set up a payee. Now, when you're setting up a payee, 
it can be that the destination account belongs to a few different accounts that the fraudster has at their end so rather than remembering all the numbers all the addresses or whatever phone numbers that are associated with each of these accounts quite likely they would be copy pasting that data that's unusual if you're a genuine user you have to send let's say a quick payment to your dog walker you wouldn't be copy pasting that information you know their phone number you know their email address you know their name and you can send a real time payment if it's a biller like you have to send a payment to Verizon or AT&T or to your electricity company you will type in that information the account number etc so that's in the context of ATO unusual behavior when you're copy pasting for uh, setting up a payee Let's transition to somebody actually reading this information, right? Yeah. So it's like long-term memory versus short-term memory. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So again, imagine in the context of account opening, you're typing in your social security number, your name and address. Social security number, you've been doing it for many, many years. It comes very fluently. you can type all the nine digits in at a steady cadence without stopping or without having to delete any digit and retype it in because you're essentially pulling it out of your long-term memory and typing in the fraudster has stolen that information from somewhere else that information does not belong to them and they're either copy pasting the social security number or the name or address or typing it in but because they're not familiar with that data they'll make mistakes and they'll correct those mistakes and then they'll type it again now when we see it in the context of the field like a social to type in a few numbers then proceed and then delete and then proceed is very unusual in the context of an account takeover attempt where they're getting a one time passcode dictated to them from the victim and they're having to type that in you'll see that the typing cadence is different possibly they type in two numbers pause they type in two numbers again maybe they make a mistake they delete one number then they type it so it feels like there is some dictation going on and because there's also an active voice call where they're hearing the number and then typing it in they're maybe making mistakes in the case of a genuine user it won't happen because they receive the one time passcode they can uh, they don't have to dictate it or hear it from somewhere else they can type it in pretty fluently so those are the occasions where long term memory and short term memory come into play and there are unique signals uh, in the context of the field being entered that we can pick up So that behavior, cutting and pasting, the pace and pauses exhibited when entering personal information. Those are just some of the digital tells that are the underlying indicators for behavioral biometrics to distinguish between genuine and fraudulent online account opening. In episode 2, we met Ayelet Bigger Levine, VP of Market Strategy at BioCatch. Later in that conversation, she went a little deeper into some of these indicators and how biocatch technology can make those distinctions. 
Some classic examples of the way that with this type of technology we can distinguish between cyber criminal activity and genuine activity is by looking by profiling the population and detecting differences between activities that correlate with fraud or correlate with genuine activity. So for example, one thing that we observe when we track account opening, activities is that there is a big difference between a cyber criminal and the legitimate actor in their familiarity with the process. A cyber criminal will be very, very familiar with the account opening process because they open many, many accounts every day. So they'll be very familiar with what are the mandatory fields. When you have a dropdown, they don't stop to select fields. They just go really quickly. They don't read the T's and C's. They won't select a credit card design. They'll just go very, very quickly and fill out the form. Whereas the legitimate user will read the terms and conditions, will select their favorite credit card design, will think about their annual income, will select their interest rates and make decisions and selections. The process will be much longer. So that's one example. A second example is familiarity with data. A legitimate actor will be very, very familiar with their personal data. And when someone uses the data that they're familiar with, they will display use of their long-term memory. So when they type, they will type continuously without pauses. And they will, of course, know the data. They might have autofill, which is legitimate, and they'll enter the data fairly quickly. However, cyber criminals, when they need to enter personal data, they'll either copy or paste it from a list. They might type it because they try to memorize it, but we will see that they're using their short-term memory and we'll see segmented typing along the way. They often have errors that they need to fix and they really display low familiarity with the data. It's interesting that some fields are actually uh, not known to legitimate actors, like think about uh, part of the application process you need to fill in a hotel rewards card. That's not something, that number is not something you have in hand. You probably have to log into your email, look for that number. Whereas a cyber criminal who knows the process and wants to fill out that, that number potentially will have that readily available. Hopefully at this point, the idea is pretty clear by now. Cyber criminals and legitimate applicants behave differently. Form familiarity, short-term and long-term memory access, cut and paste and autofills, these all make great indicators. Biocatch can leverage these digital tells to help organizations that rely on online applications for their businesses to protect themselves from fraud losses. And they also help protect society, people like you and me, from being victimized by identity thieves and cybercrime syndicates. But wait, there's more. You may recall in episode one when I teased the idea that behavioral biometrics can actually guess your age not too long ago, a BioCatch customer had an idea. If an application indicates that the applicant is, say, 18 or 19 years old, or say 75 or 85 years old for that matter, but the data is entered by someone, say, in their 40s, could we detect that? It turns out, to a degree of certainty, we can. Here's Ayelet again. You know, when looking, when analyzing the data and trying to find those correlations between ages and the use and the interaction, we found a shocking truth that for every year over 40, your keystrokes become slower. But specifically, 
there were nuances in things that we can look at, like shift to letter. So when you want to capitalize something, there are a few milliseconds added for every year over 40. And we could see a dramatic difference between someone in their 20s and someone in their 60s or 70s when conducting these activities. Another element is the use of a mobile device and the area in which users interact. So their swipe or the use of two thumbs versus a finger, a lot of indicators of age, very, very subtle things. But again, looking at the combination of those, we're able to detect within five years uh, the age group that the user really belongs to. All right. So with all this technology to help differentiate between real and fraudulent account applications, you've got to figure that occasionally some really interesting results follow. You're going to want to listen up to this story. It's a good one. If you're like me, you may have worked for a company or two in your career that has its own folklore. I once worked for a company whose founder, and I'm putting in air quotes here, allegedly ran over the car of a pizza delivery driver with his tank while the poor guy was carrying the pizza to his front door. The story still occasionally comes up in conversation, and I still can't confirm or deny it. Fortunately, Biocatch has no such infamous lore, but the story you're about to hear, I've heard more than a few times in just a few months. And this one I can not only confirm is true, but it helps to make a really important point about the value of detecting account opening fraud using behavioral biometrics. In episode one, you met Howard Edelstein, Biocatch's chairman. In a second here, I'm going to drop you into more of the conversation he and I had. In this part, he was talking about winning the business of a major financial services company at the early stages of their work with Biocatch. Here's Howard. And the story in point was we identified, this is a particular case that came out of an analysis while they were becoming a client, a particular case where someone was applying for a credit card. Uh, We thought it was perfectly legit. They filled out the entire application and anyone who filled out the application that way had to be okay. Well, the credit card company turned down the application. And they turned it down because they told us it was fraudulent. And we said, okay. And we went back and you were always trying to figure out, you know, if the model works and the AI is uh, humming along. And the uh, data science team came back and said, listen, you know, this, we looked at the data. This can't be a fraudulent application. The guy really knew what he was entering. And the credit card company said, you know... We don't want to piss you guys off or anything, but I just want to tell you, it really is fraud. And uh, we went back and forth a few times and we said, well, how do you know that? And they said, it's really simple. The guy's dead. Well, that's one of those New York binary kind of answers, right? Dead, not dead, you know. Well, our data science team doesn't exactly take that at face value. And they went back and looked at the data and they came back and they were ready for this. They said, I think we better call them and tell them the guy's not dead. And everyone kind of looked at each other and said, you got to be effing kidding. Really? What am I going to do with this gem of a piece of information? Right? Because in the end of the day, it turned out uh, they actually called the guy, the purported dead guy, and someone answered the phone, purporting to be the dead guy who was applying for a credit card. And one thing led to another, and it turned out that, believe it or not, the guy was far from dead. And this was determined through the use of behavior. So it's a really simple explanation, quite frankly, 
But the explanation was that someone, a legitimate person entering a legitimate information for a legitimate credit card application, mistyped a digit of his social security number in the US. That social corresponded to a social of someone who was deceased. And when they ultimately became a client, we also found that by reducing false fraudulent applications, the byproduct of that was actually decreasing false declines and increasing number of credit cards they gave out, which also was a real revenue opportunity for them. So it's a win-win-win situation and behavior had never been used this way before. So this is a great story, which raises a few important points, none of which pertain to Biocatch resurrecting the dead. But it's important to understand, as we mentioned previously, that behavioral biometrics isn't the only fraud detection technology out there. There are others, but none are infallible. And some may introduce friction, like asking life questions or imposing other obstacles that prospects potentially just don't want to deal with. And businesses, they spend lots and lots of money on marketing and customer acquisition. For organizations to lose a potential customer at the very point of filling out an account application, only because the anti-fraud technology is too cumbersome or they accidentally mistyped something? Well, that's just heartbreaking for marketers like me. In episode six, we'll talk about the return on investment or ROI of behavioral biometrics. But suffice to say, it's not just about stopping fraud. It's at least equally about winning and retaining good customers by reducing friction and making for a great customer experience. Digital Tells is written and narrated by me, Peter Beardmore, in partnership with my producer, Doug Stevens of Creative Audio and Music, and with the unwavering support and sponsorship of my employer, Biocatch. Special thanks to Raj Dasgupta, Ayelet Bigger-Levine, and Howard Edelstein. We once again opened our episode with Tom O'Malley. Since Tom retired from the U.S. Department of Justice, he started a website called frozenpie.org. Pie is spelled P-I-I, as in personally identifiable information. The site helps consumers protect their identities. You can find a link in our show notes. Check it out. For more information about this episode, behavioral biometrics, or to share a comment or idea, visit biocatch.com slash podcast. Join us for episode four, in which we'll explore scams. Did you know that your car warranty is about to expire? More importantly, what can be done to detect when someone is about to be victimized by a scammer? Until then, take care.